All right, hello and welcome to, I don't even know what we're calling this, Monday Night Bible Study, I guess. So I'm grateful that you guys have joined me tonight. My name is Adam Schindler. We've got um, a handful of folks here coming online on Facebook and YouTube, streaming on a couple of those platforms. And then we've also got a handful of people that are joining me via Zoom here on the back end. I got a new microphone and I got some backing music with a fun little podcast soundboard. You guys don't care about that, but I care about that because it gives me something to do, some other buttons to push while I am sitting here wanting to talk to y'all and teach you and pursue the text of the scriptures with you all together. So I'm grateful for that. Um, had a lot of fun playing with my kids podcasting. They all got to make their own sample sounds. So if you hear some um, uh, random and inappropriate sounds, uh, that was me pushing the wrong button. I haven't deleted my children's samples. Uh, So just I'm letting you know that ahead of time. Very good. Okay, so tonight I am excited to talk through another section of the book of Genesis. I've called this little study here, The Genesis. Um, it's not like The Jesus, uh, <laughs> but it's it's the beginning, the origins. Um, <clears throat> and that's a big part of understanding the biblical narrative and understanding the authority. Many of y'all that are joining me went through the Exodus files. If you didn't, you can go catch that on my website, adamshindler.com. And there's a menu button there, Exodus Files, and it's there. It's a great uh, eight-session study on the book of the Exodus and the narrative, uh, really the elaboration of the foundation of what the scriptures are about, I believe. Um, Of course, we know that Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name, it's his title, and he gets it from primarily these pictures begin to emerge in the Exodus. So it's a wonderful book. But after the Exodus was written, most likely the the book of Genesis was created. So you come out of slavery and then you record that event and then you begin to talk about the origin and you begin to craft as a new nation uh, sacred texts and memories of the things that, that God had done through your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So um, the Genesis story is a significant one. And tonight uh, I'll be talking through something I call In His Image, A Tabernacle of Light. And I realized after I titled that, that I did not um, I did not include the portion on his image. So I ran out of time. So maybe I'll include that uh, post hoc at the end. But the graphic that you're seeing uh, right here is uh, my... My community community number. If you all want to join me on the Zoom meetings um, backstage, so to speak, it's about a thirty second delay on social media. But on Zoom, they get it real time. And then if you hear voices coming through that aren't me, those are participants on the Zoom meeting. So if you want to join that and get text notifications on the study and get those links for every week, text um, the word "study" to this number here on the screen, and you'll be included in future. Uh, text. I usually send them out on Mondays um, for what it is that we're doing. And don't worry, I'm not going to spam you or try and sell you some multi-level marketing plans. Um, It's just for this study. And you can opt out by saying opt out or stop at any time. Um, So, all right. So tonight we are going over something I'm calling Genesis, the Genesis in his image, a tabernacle of light. And, and 
I really want to um, uh, to lay out, trying to look down at my new gadget here. I have a little switcher. I can push the button. Yay. So I'm, uh, I'm foregoing my green screen tonight also. So you'll excuse my talit covering the dirty shelves. But in honor of Shavuot, <laughs> I ran out of time, y'all. I got kids. My wife's been gone. <sighs> I had to play golf. So it was a busy day. Um, but where was I? <sighs> See, I do this live in person too. So I might as well do it online. Um, oh yes. So the Bible, we're going to talk through the Bible tonight. So the, um, the, the thing about Genesis is that there has been a significant amount of conflict throughout the years between science and religion. Okay. And this conflict between science and religion, I think is propagated in, in, in some parts by the quote unquote scientific community. Like I'm using big generalizations to make this group of others, you know, there's not, some of these generalizations aren't totally accurate, but they're helpful as scaffolding to think about an idea. That's my qualification. Um, so the scientific community in general has, has um, operated from a, f- a faith assumption that God isn't real, just like believers operate from the faith assumption that he is. And uh, in my opinion, and I could do, believe me, I can talk two hours on this, in my opinion, the, the scientific community in large um, that propagates the evolutionary theory and the, and the conflict between the Christian narrative and the biblical creation narrative um, is largely doing that because they don't believe in God and they want to have evidence and disprove God. So there is a lot of really good science around creationism, around intelligent design, the mathematics. Um, and in my opinion, since I'm here on my own page and I can say these sorts of things, it's a little bit like looking on the election, the election statistics uh, in 2020. If you look at the statistics overnight, charts just go like that. And if you look at the math, it just doesn't seem statistically possible that President Biden got all the votes that he got. Um, and in the same sort of fashion, oh my gosh, I'm tying these two things together live. But uh, in the same sort of fashion, if you look at the, uh, the math and the evidence around intelligent design and creationism, it, it just doesn't begin to make sense. Some of these fundamental assumptions about macroevolution and the theory of evolution that was primarily propagated to come against the Church of England, and it was used as a wedge between secular and sacred um, authorities. There is a geopolitical power game that was played in the scientific community at the origin of species publications, late 1800s, and all of the philosophical and governmental theories that were moving around at that time. So I wasn't going to wade into that, but I stumbled into it. But one of the one of the issues there from a Christian perspective has always been this challenge about the Christians uh, uh, and the biblical Judeo-Christian, because this Genesis is a is a Jewish book, a Hebrew book. I got new headphones; they're not staying in my ears. Um, there's been this challenge saying that this six-day, seven-day literal creation story is blatantly false, patently false. The Bible says that it's true, therefore the Bible is wrong, and everything that comes after Genesis is wrong, because there's no possible way, so the narrative goes, that the world could have been created in six literal days, and all the fools that believe that are just wrong. You believe a book, 
that is wrong. Um, that's one unnuanced version of the argument. Well, tonight I want to lay out for you um, not a workaround, but what I think is an, a very self-apparent and orthodox reading of the book of Genesis. Because I believe through the exegesis that I've done here and reading of other scholars that the Bible in Genesis is not telling a six-day literal material origin story. Okay, And that doesn't mean that a six-day literal creationism thing, the science and the math and all of the things that are behind that theorem, uh, theory, are wrong. But it does mean that the biblical authority, that the weight of orthodoxy surrounding the scripture is not challenged by the, the, the denial of a six-day literal creation. Okay? Now... That's a little bit different um, than saying that the biblical narrative and the authority of orthodoxy is not challenged by the theory of evolution, okay? Because the theory of evolution that man evolved from apes and other primates, apes primarily, that does challenge the biblical orthodoxy, okay? Um, and I am not a believer in macroevolution. Obviously, microevolution happens and the things that progress, um, obviously, you know, that is not... Uh, a biblical truth, and it's it's a theory. Uh, it's not doesn't have a whole lot of scientific weight behind it when you get down to the fundamental faith assumptions. I'm not going to get into that other than to assert my opinion. But tonight, I do want to lay out how we can understand the scriptures from the Hebraic perspective and try and hear the story that is being told from the authors and the cultural perspective. And that story is an arc throughout the entirety of the Old and the New Testament, the full biblical corpus. And when we see it in, in, in the light of the, the culture in which it was written and the meaning for which the authors, I believe, were intending it to be understood— we come out of direct conflict, at least the initial conflict, that you are a crazy six-day literalist person and you believe a lie, a book that's a lie. Um, and I just want to unveil a little bit of that stuff tonight. Um, again, it doesn't solve the evolutionary conflict. It doesn't solve a bunch of the other scientific things. But hopefully we'll see a little bit tonight um, give us a new perspective on that primary story from a biblically orthodox uh, perspective. Make sense? Head nodding, crumb. You guys on Zoom, you're you're my gravy. You know, you gotta you gotta help me out here now. You're my you're my live audience. All right, thanks, Alan. Demonstrative. It's like when my first career was doing professional theater, and I, you always had to overact when you did theater. So I need some overacting. Thank you, Faith. Peter, what's happening, buddy? Very good, Sherry. Thank you. All right, so. Um, so first, I want to give us a little bit of recap here. Um, last week, we talked about the, uh, the firmament. I laid out the, the, the examples of the firmament and the, the connection to the veil in the temple and all of these wonderful pictures. But I want to just kind of recap a little bit of this. I made a little diagram. Lots of pictures tonight, y'all. Uh, here's a full screen diagram of the ancient Hebrew conception of creation. And this is built out of the um, Genesis 1 and 2. So this is, this is fundamentally the way that the, the Genesis scriptures kind of lay out uh, the creation. 
And it is the waters above and the waters below. Let me see if I can annotate this here for you. So first we've got our waters. Wait, that's the abyss. Wait, there, just a pointer. So we've got the waters below here. And the scriptures say that the, the, the waters were separated to the waters above the firmament and then the waters below the firmament. And then God creates, and we're going to go through the seven-day creation story here today, but he creates mountains, and these mountains um, were the pillars that, that held up the sky for the Hebrew mind, for the conception. And there is a lot, and I'm just not going to go into it, a lot of connections with other Mesopotamian uh, creation narratives in some of this stuff that are very interesting to me, uh, but I'm not going to get into that. So the mountains were the pillars that held up the sky, but there were also pillars that held up the earth. And these were the things that were down in the waters below. And these are the pillars of the earth, sort of this gray area, this conceptualization that there was, there was waters above and waters below, but something was holding up the earth. And this idea of Sheol uh, is, I mean, hell is the translation of that multiple times in the scriptures. But... Um, that is, a, that is a place here. I, uh, I did a little teaching on that before. But the, the firmament of the heavens here is kind of the upper extent of the sky. It's, it's what we would call the ozone or the, at the edge of the atmosphere that you break out into space now. Um, obviously, the Hebrews didn't have that conception. That's a very recent conception of, of space. But the day and the night was divided into the sun and the moon and the stars and the day and the night. Uh, and then this water above the firmament was, um, well, that was the third heaven. We talked some about that. That third heaven idea doesn't show up a lot in the Hebrew conception that comes in with Paul, uh, although he was a Pharisee, so you got to wonder where he got some of that. So this is the basic layout of the, of the Jewish, Hebrew, Hebraic uh, perspective as it's articulated in, um, in Genesis. So I want to talk uh, specifically to begin, ask this question here about the difference between a house and a home. And this is the first concept that I want to introduce to help us understand what the, what the authors are saying and what they may be really trying to impart to us uh, throughout the entirety of the scripture. And there's a difference between a house and a home. You know, if anyone's been house shopping uh, in my city, there's like, I mean, it's a city of a couple hundred thousand people with the surrounding neighborhoods, and there's like 12 houses for sale. Uh, everybody's buying like crazy right now. And in Texas, where I just moved from, home prices are skyrocketing, and everybody's buying houses, right? Um, and when you go house shopping or house looking, you're, you're the, one of the first things you look at, you look at it online. And... Um, when you look online, you know, you see the way that it looks and you see you know, how it looks and feels. And the first really thing you encounter is the material construction of the house, right? You look at, well, how many rooms does it have and how many bedrooms does it have? And what's the roof like? And is there a pool? Is there a fence for my dog? Whatever your criterion are, you pay attention to the material construction of the house. And when you're building a house or buying a house, um, when you really get into it, there, there's 12, according to the construction management website I got this from, there are 12 major components to building a home. 
Okay, and and these are roof, parapet, lintels, beams, columns, damp proof, course, walls, floors, stairs, pinth beam, foundation, and the plinth. Uh, I was going to do a diagram of all this, but it was really superfluous, and I didn't spend the time doing it. But uh, the... The idea is that there's all of these, these 12 major components to putting in creating the material construction of a house, okay? And in the book of Genesis, we're tempted to look at this as a house story, the, the material origins of the universe, because there are most definitely material components in Genesis, Okay, I mean, God talks about the sky and the seas and the land and the waters. And so he talks specifically about some of these material components. And, and this is how we've read and, and, and looked at, uh, many of us, from the Genesis narrative. But how many of y'all know there's a difference between a house and a home? Right? And what's the big difference between a house and a home? Well... In 2008, I remember when the housing market collapsed and there was like entire blocks of Detroit and, you know, the suburbs in Michigan and there was blight and people moved out of their houses and they were no longer homes, right? What makes a house a home is simple. It's a habitation. It's a dwelling place. A house is a home when it has an occupant, okay? And these are two simple words but they carry great weight. Um, and one of my one of my favorite shows uh, back in the day was, I'm kind of sad it's over. I mean, it's still going, but not in the same iteration. I lived in San Antonio for a while, and, you know, we had a, a sort of an armpit city between uh, San Antonio and Dallas. And this armpit city was called Waco. And <laughs> Waco was home to the Baylor Bears. Yay, Baylor. Um, and Ken Starr was Chancellor of Baylor until got in some trouble or harassed anyway. But the point of that is that there was this show that came on uh, that made Waco cool. You know, and all of a sudden people from California wanted to move to Waco, Texas. And it was Chip and Joanna Gaines, you know, it was Magnolia Homes. And they took these old houses and they flipped them and they did just, I mean, it's a house flipping show, right? It's just flipping houses. But they did it, and there was this unique coupling of this kind of quirky, Chip Gaines kind of macho man, goober, tender-hearted dude. And his job was to deal with the material construction, to deal with the components. And every episode of, of oh, what is that show even called anymore? All I know is Magnolia. Um, I can't, I can't. You're, I know your mouth in it, but I can't hear you. Thank you. Well... Fixer Upper, thank you. That was a good lip sync. Um, so Fixer Upper, right? And so every episode of Fixer Upper, Chip would go and he would do, he would find the house, which we know they already bought, so it wasn't really a good, you know, you got to make TV. But they'd find this house, and then he would go in and they'd look at the material components and he'd always find some problem or they'd manufacture a problem because the producers needed conflict. And, you know, he dealt with the material stuff. But then Joanna, she was the one that was this brilliant designer. And she was the one that came in, yeah, Nancy sprinkled her little, her little Waco dust on things and made everything beautiful. And at the end of every episode, there was this move-in day. And you got to see the, the cute couple that you got to know, and they're living there, and they've got, there's a party. 
at the end of every episode with all of the guests because everybody knows they're not buying a house, they're investing in a home and a home requires habitation. And the people that make homes are the ones that really create the value. Um, you can't create a home. Well, you can create a home out of any kind of house, right? So, and their whole business is not called Magnolia House. It's Magnolia Home. So we know inherently the difference between a house and a home. And the scriptures here are, I believe, a home story. And I'm going to lay out for you why they're a home story. And fundamentally, there's a couple of just key uh, pictures throughout the scriptures. One of them is seed and womb. All of the scriptures uh, you can unpack with, the, with that idea, the seed and the womb, the relationship with God, creation, um, the kingdom of God, you know, male and female relationships, all of that. The other part of that is a home story, a dwelling place, God making a place amongst his people. That is the fundamental story of the scriptures. So I want to introduce that concept, and I want to look at Genesis, the seven-day creation story from the home perspective, okay? And every good home, you got to deal with some of the house stuff, right? We got to talk about some of the material origins of the things, because if you walk into a beautiful house and you see this 400-year-old door from Ireland. You know, you're not, you're not thinking about the dinner parties. You're looking at this door. Um, I nannied for a couple that had all these old doors from Europe. And it, so it's fun to marvel at the material component of a home and wonder uh, who built it and where did it come from and just be enamored with the beauty. So we're going to do that on one of the material qualities, but then tell the, the home story in general um, from this perspective. Does that make sense? Y'all with me now? All right. So, all right, I'm just checking Facebook. All right, so first we got to read the seven-day creation story, and um, we'll go here, and I'll just read this out. This is a, a progression from the seven-day creation. We're only going to do this first slide. We're not going to get into the rest. I encourage you to go and read that, but I want to focus in on a few of these key concepts. So this is Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to pick up these concepts here. These, these Hebrew words are a big deal here. The earth was without form and void. We're going to talk about that, and then we're going to talk about hovering. So this formlessness and void is a... I'm going to go back here, actually. Um, one, one notice here. Um, that if, if the Bible was telling a material origin story, then one of the questions we need to ask is, if, if, if this Genesis story is about laying out how all of the material qualities in the creation were made, then why is there waters already? Okay? This is a material quality. There's not fish, and there's not birds. Um, there wasn't nothing. There was water. 
right? And if the waters, if we read this in a literalist perspective, if the waters mean materially literal waters, then there's literally already waters when God begins to do the creation. So he didn't create everything materially. There was something pre-existing. So then we get into this conundrum, like, well, what was pre-existing before God spoke into all creation? Um, And, you know, there's some arguments for that. But I think a better way to look at this, which hopefully in the end of this lecture conversation, uh, I'll have proved it to you. But a better way to look at this is that this is not a literal material origin story. Um, This is a metaphor, a picture. This is the ancient Hebraic way of articulating things that are incredibly profound and accurate for understanding humanity. And that's what I love about the scriptures is if you begin to read it, not as like a constitution or a law book or a material origin story, you actually get to meet the God that did all of this. And it it fundamentally changes um, your experience with the scriptures. So there was already water, but there was without form and void. So Mr. Internet Bible teacher guy, if you say it's not a literal six-day thing, what the heck are the waters and what's this formless and void? Well, good question, straw man that I set up for myself. Um, One of the big ideas here is about chaos and order. Is that what God is doing from a Hebraic perspective, and talked about this a little bit before, but from a Hebraic perspective, water was chaos. And water has, has for many people, always been chaos. Not just the Jews didn't like water. Uh, master and commander of the sea, was that a Russell Crowe movie? You know, I mean, we've always had, and we love the we love the seagoing people because they go out and they conquer the unknown chaotic void, which was the sea. You know, because we're humans and, you know, we have fingers that don't have fins and we have to breathe oxygen and we don't have gills and water represents death. You can't live for long in water. And as a parent of three small children, I was so happy when the pool stopped becoming a murder weapon (laughs) because my kids learned how to swim and I wasn't panicked every time they were around there. So the water is chaos, And it's been like that throughout history, throughout the narrative history of the ancient world as well. And so when God comes in, there is this, he says that the the things that existed uh, were without form. And the Hebrew word here is tohu. And it means without form. They didn't have a structure to them. There were things that existed, but they had no structure. Um, Again, I'm a dad, so... I have a lot of tohu in my house. I have a lot of energy activity without structure, you know? And if I let my kids go without structure, Melody, you've got kids, you know. Mm -hmm. If you let them go without structure, what happens? Chaos. So we need God to come in and order some chaos. The strong hand of the mother law comes in. But tohu has no form. It has no structure. And the void is this word bohu which means there was no structure, but things were empty. So you can have structure with a lot of stuff, or you can have no structure with a lot of stuff. But not only was there no structure, there was no stuff. It was an emptiness. And this idea of emptiness, the tohu vabohu, is a 
profound concept, and it, it, it picks up some of the other ancient Mesopotamian creation narratives, like the Numa Elish, um, have similar ideas, and they have similar um, deities that come and conquer this, this formless void, the waters. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that the, the Hebrews stole this from them. I'm saying that the idea is in these ancient stories, there is a truth of God that's been embedded in the human heart, and the humanity has tried to understand that and articulate it and lay that out. And the scriptures are divinely inspired, so we've got a little bit of an edge in the layout truth perspective because we got, we got help from heaven to understand these things. So there was a, a formless, unstructured void, and what God comes and he does is that he hovers over the face of the chaos and he brings order. Okay, I want to talk about chaos and order and the fundamental reality that God comes through his divine speech, the things that he says over the earth to take unstructured emptiness and to order it. And um, this idea is really profound. And, and I got quite a bit of help from a guy, Jordan Peterson, thinking through some of these concepts because for years I've been studying this and I had philosophical language, but he put, he put some language to this that I thought was, I mean, just really powerful. And so if you've followed Jordan, uh, I'm going to give you a little mini Peterson lecture here. Um, if you have, I mean, I, I hate to claim this as my own. I thought about it, but I didn't come up with this. Um, but I'd also kind of thought about it. But Jordan's awesome, in my opinion. But the big idea here is that the world that we see all around us is a chaotic, unstructured experience. And if you think about it from a little child's perspective, you know, they come into the world and they don't understand anything. And it's a formless void. It's a chaotic, unstructured, empty world. And it's very clear that as children, one of the things that begins to give order to the unknown world is the face of the mother, is the face of the father. It's the nurturing at the mother's breast. It's the feeding. It's that comforting, nourishing thing begins to order the dark, chaotic world that lives outside. Kids can't even see as infants. They can't see that far. And even these pictures of this helplessly... Um, hopelessly helpless infant coming into the world. You know, they're destined for an eternal life and they're infinitely valuable, but if they're not intimately daily connected to someone that will take total care of them, they die. And I think that it's wild that humanity in its infinite value must be cared for in the way that we have to be cared for, otherwise we die. If I made something infinitely valuable, I'd want to make sure that I could set it somewhere and not have it die the moment that I left it alone. But that wasn't God's plan for humanity. He didn't want us to just pop us into the world. He wanted us to come into a chaotic world that would literally smother and destroy us. Um, that's sort of a man, uh, anthropomorphizing. Anthropomorphizing? That's the wrong conjugate. Um, creation. But... Creation, literally, the world will overwhelm an infant if they're not intimately connected, somebody fending off the dark and the chaos that's around them. But as kids get older, they acquire some more skills, and they begin to explore. And one of my, um, my oldest daughter, Sophia, and she was, she, was one of the, she was my first kid, so she's like my practice kid. 
Um, parents of multiple children kind of understand that. So she, she was prone to bolt out of the house as a child into the street. And I was scared of that. I didn't like it. And we lived on a, on a golf course area and we lived on a cul-de-sac and the worst that could happen is she maybe would get hit by a golf cart, but it scared me. And so when she was a little kid, I would take her out to the boundary, which was the sidewalk. And, and I, I put her on the sidewalk and I'd say, I'd point her out towards the street and I would say, no. Now I know some parents don't say no, but I didn't read that parenting book. No. And then I'd turn her around and I'd show her the backyard and I would say, Yes, play, street, bad, death, behind you, life, stay here, okay? So I gave her a boundary, and out in the street was a chaotic world. She didn't go there. She didn't know what was out there. She, was, she began to be afraid of that, and I was like, I've done it well. My child is afraid to run in the street. Fear has put a boundary in her life. She doesn't know what's on the other side of the boundary. Therefore, she's staying in the yard, and dad is happy. Well, a few years ago, we moved to a new, a new street, and um, she was like eight years old, nine years old, and uh, it was on a much busier neighborhood, and she got in her scooter, and she rode down the driveway the first day that we were there, and we got down the driveway, and you know, there's a whole like road up the hill for her to go and play in, and she didn't, she didn't do it. She was just standing there, and I walked up to her to see what was going on, and she was crying like she was weeping, and she was trembling. I was like, Sophia, go, go right on the sidewalk. And she said, the street, the street I can't. It's like, no, it, it's okay. We're, we're, you're fine. Just stay, just stay on. She's texting me right now asking for technology. Uh, she knows I'm talking about her. Um, uh, the answer is no. Um, I should have turned that off. Sorry. Uh, oh, sad face emoji. Oh, Sophia, if you only knew. Um, so, so I'm telling her, I'm realizing that she's terrified of the street. And what I realized was that my boundary of prohibition that kept her from the chaotic near-death experience that she could have experienced in the street, that boundary that protected her as a child was now a prison as she was getting older. And I needed to expand her horizons. So I took her, I sat her down, I made her put her feet in the street, and she was terrified to do that. And I don't know if this was good parenting or bad parenting to even put that in her, but I was like, Sophia, you know, the street is not bad. The street is, the street is good. You like going to church? Yeah. Well, how do we get there? In the car? Well, how do I get the car there? You drive on the street? I'm like, yeah. So the street is good. But as you're getting older, you need to come into a new relationship with the street. You need to come and understand how the street works because in a few years, you're going to be driving and a scared driver is a bad driver, okay? Um, so I helped her reassociate and what she did, and this is Jordan Peterson's language, is that she mapped out the unknown territory of the street. She began to explore it. She began to understand. She learned how to cross the street. She learned how to go up the neighborhood. She discovered that the next block over had smooth pavement, and that was way more fun to ride her scooter on. What she was doing as a child is she was going out into the dark, chaotic, formless, structure, unstructured world. There was stuff there, but it was unstructured, and she was venturing out, and she was mapping out new territory. 
And when she mapped it out, she learned, okay, sidewalk good, street bad, watch for cars. She gained a whole new level of skills and appreciation to move out into an uncharted world, to map out places of safety, to map out places of meaning in her life. And she grew. She became more than she was already. And she experienced the ability to ride a scooter. Okay. And this is what we do. Fundamentally, children do this from the beginning. You know, if you have a cat and you go, which I don't recommend, but if you have a cat and you go from one apartment to the next, when you get into the new apartment, what does the cat do? It hides under the bed because you never know what's going to jump out and eat you. Okay. The cats and animals map out their territory just as well. And once they understand the chaotic realms, then they feel safe. Okay. They understand And so Peterson's definition of chaos is chaos is the place where what you expect to happen doesn't happen. Okay. And order is the place when what you expect to happen does. That's a reduction. So some of the the national chaos that we're in is that we expected one thing, free and fair elections, and that didn't happen. Uh, So that turned into chaos. Right, And you guys may be feeling chaos because what we thought was an ordered, structured electoral system has now been thrown into chaos. And there's competing narratives and there's gaslighting and there's all kinds of stuff that's happening now that makes everything very chaotic. And many of us have pulled back into our homes to be protected because venturing out onto social media, venturing out into cancel culture and the Twitter mobs or venturing out to say anything about election integrity on the internet gets you attacked, right? So we're trying to order that chaos now. So when, when God comes in and the, the, the earth is tohu vabohu, it's a chaotic, unstructured void. He comes in and he speaks order into that chaos. Okay? And he does it. Oh, that was a nice reveal. I forgot to set that up. Um, oh, well. He does it by speech. He speaks out his divine word at a word God says. And what happens when God speaks is the darkness that's around us lifts and the ordering voice of God into the chaos begins to illuminate the cosmos, right? And this is the picture in Genesis that the world is formless without structure, without void. There were material things, but in the chaos, it's the divine speech of the eternal God that begins to illuminate the darkness, Okay? And this is our fundamental task as believers and of children of God. Um, and even if you're not a religious person, you're probably not still listening to me, but um, even if you're not a religious person, this is our fundamental task to come into the world and to order the chaotic, dark elements. All right? So this is the fundamental beginning to the home story is that God orders chaos, and he does it through his divine speech. And his divine speech, the first thing that God says is, let there be light. So let's talk about light here for a few minutes. So day one, he says, light. And we'll find that everything that he speaks out, it's got a function or a purpose to it. Okay? And that tiny little word that you probably can't see is time. Okay, so I want to talk about light and time now. And this is, this is my unashamedly nerdy scientific thing. 
Um, this is our little soiree into a 400-year-old door in a house. Okay, we're telling a home story, but we're going to look at a really cool door right now. So the idea of time or light that God speaks out, um, I want to talk to you guys about what light is. And, I mean, I love light. Light and sound, um, the fossé and the, the, the phoné, uh, the, the, the light and the sound, the word and um, the illumination is a really cool uh, piece of the scriptures. But fundamentally, what is light? Anyone ever studied that or wondered that? If you've done physics or science, I, I studied philosophy, so we didn't do a lot of science um, but or math. But the philosophers say that, you know, philosophy is math perfected. Um, so we get rid of all the numbers and then we just deal in concepts. But light, fundamentally, it begins with a charged particle. Okay, so ultimately, this is a photon, which is a photon's a component of a charge. I mean, it is a charged particle. It's one kind of a particle. But ultimately, light begins with a particle. You take a particle and you have to charge it. Okay, and when you charge it, that creates an electrofield. And there's different kinds of fields in physics, um, and there's different kinds of forces. So fields make up, and some pairings of fields make up individual forces. And we'll see that light's a pretty strong force. So it begins with a charged particle, and then what happens is that charged particle, as it goes out, it creates ripples or oscillations going back and forth is an oscillation in its electric field. And this moving out, it basically, you take, you take a photon, oh, it's not a photon, you take, you take a particle, you charge it with something, you put electricity in it, and then it begins to move. And as it moves through the atmosphere, then it creates a disturbance in its motion because particles have spin and energy when they get charged. And so they go through and it begins to create another field. And this charged particle is an electric uh, field, but it also produces a magnetic field as it goes out into the atmosphere, disturbing everything that's around it. Okay, And this magnetic field, it becomes what, what light really is known as. And here's my science graph. Um, and light is uh, an electric and a magnetic field working in, um, in connection with one another. And this is a graph of the light wave because photons operate as waves and as particles. I'm not going to get too deep because I'm going to lose some of y'all. Um, not because you can't think this way, but probably think it's boring, but it can be waves and particles. But in this diagram, this is the wave. So the blue line is the electronic or the electric uh, field, and it's in a waveform, but it produces a magnetic field as well. And that magnetic field is the red line that's underneath it. And what happens as these two lines begin to oscillate, they come into what's called phase with one another, they begin to perpetuate themselves and they get an energy of its own. And what happens here is that this energy begins to work off one another and it becomes something that is creation's constant. Light, the speed of light that we know, is the constant speed by which most everything in creation is ordered. And the, the technical definition um, of light is that it is, um, well, light is a uh, self-perpetuating, oscillating waveform. Technically, it's far-field electromagnetic radiation. I promise I'm going to stop talking science-y um, in a minute. But the, 
The idea here is just so interesting to me because when God speaks, the first thing that happens is that light comes. And in order for there to be light, there has to be a particle. And in order for that particle to become an electric field, it has to be charged with something. So this is not what the Hebrews were saying when they said, and God said, let there be light. But this is how we can look and apply what we've come to understood, what they saw and understood through their relationship to God. We can now put a little bit of meat to it. God spoke and charged the earth with his voice. Okay, And his voice put an electrical, electrical current into creation. And everything in all of creation has electricity moving in it if it's alive. Okay, Your body can charge a, a light bulb. If you were able to work out the circuitry, you could stick your tongue on the edge of a bulb and it would light it up perpetually. Um, you have an electrical current in your body and the electrical pathways, neurological pathways in the body I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a complex bioelectrical system. So God speaks, charges the particle with his voice, and as his voice moves into the chaos, it disturbs everything that's in creation. And as it disturbs everything that's in creation, it begins to create a magnetic field. What is this magnetism of God that draws things into who he is? So now there's chaotic void in structure, and he charges a particle, and that particle begins to move out into the earth. But it disturbs things, and it begins to draw things into it. And what happens when God said, let there be light, and there was light, now there is this self-perpetuating, oscillating waveform that will never stop, that will go on forever because it has in it the own energy and mass and velocity to move. And I mean, I just love the reality that light is created through a word that charges particles that does all this cool stuff. Um, and so when God says, let there be light, he's also created time. Okay, and time is, I mean, I'm, I'm terrified of time. You know, I used to be terrified of death. Uh, tornadoes not existing and divorce. Um, uh, and so time, <laughs> I've, I've, I've never experienced any of those, actually. Thank you, Jesus. Um, although a tornado came close to my house recently but I was okay. My friends weren't. But not existing time. There we go. So time, technically what time is, and here's more sciencey definitions, but um, time is, um, uh, what did I write there? Oh, okay. Um, how do we keep time? Who is the keeper of time? Um, no, it's not Dr. Who. Uh, it is an international system of units. This is the UTC universal something time code, whatever, I forget what UTC means. But this international system of units defines time as the amount of time it takes an atom, a cesium-133 atom, to oscillate exactly 9,192,631,770 times. So what does that mean? Well, here's a diagram. Right, so this is a cesium-133 atom, and what they do, and these are called atomic clocks, and what they do is they take this little atom and they push it back and forth. That's an oscillation. That was one oscillation. You multiply that by 9 billion, and you've got one second. 
Okay, so the very idea here, as God creates light, he also creates time. All right, and that light that illuminates and begins to order the chaos also sets a boundary upon things. And so let's go back to our Genesis uh, day story here. And the first thing that God creates is light, and then he creates time. And we're going to come back to this. The next thing that he creates is day two, he creates the firmament. And these are the divided waters that I had talked about a couple of weeks ago, um, or last week. And I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you haven't. Um, so God creates the firmament, divides the waters above, sets the boundaries Again, there's this idea that any time that God separates things, he has to put something in its place to hold the separation back. So when he separated the chaos, he set the firmament in its place uh, to hold things back and restrain it. Then day three, God creates dry land. And in this dry land, and this is sort of the separating out of the waters, and this is sort of the idea of those pillars that I showed you, the pillars underneath the the waters, they kind of rise up or... The, the scriptures say that the water recedes and the earth was gathered in together. So this idea that the dry land was created and then earth and vegetation was created. Then we've got day four and God creates the sun and the moon and it says to rule over the day and the night. All right, so ruling over day and night or night and day in the Hebrew Bible is um, these are the timekeepers, and the sun and the moon are the ones that structure the days. And this is just for free. Uh, If you ever wondered why the Jewish calendar starts or the day starts at the night, it's because of this verse. And there was evening and there was morning the first day, the second day. The The day begins in the evening, and the morning is the end of the day, which is an interesting, um, interesting idea. But what I want to show you here is there is a connection here between the sun and the moon and light, right? Because the sun is the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. So what's the connection here? Well, one of the things that we see sort of, we see this home story cycle told in a smaller capacity inside of these seven days. So day one, God creates this, this large-scale boundary, you know, light and time. He created time. But then he needs somebody or something inside of time to keep the order, right? To measure that. So the sun and the moon are placed inside of time so that they can be the rulers of the day and the night, the rulers of the greater and the lesser lights. So the sun and the moon are set inside of what God made on day one to rule, okay? The next day, day five, birds and fish. God creates the birds and the fish. Well, you see a connection between day five and day two. In day two, God divides the waters. Okay, And then in day five, he populates that thing that he made with birds and fish. So day one, he creates light and time. Day four, he gives that thing that he made a ruler. Uh, someone to have dominion over that space. Light has the sun and the moon to rule. Then the second day, he makes the waters, and then he puts something in the waters, okay? He creates it, populates it with a living being, 
what happens on day six. So there's a connection there. Day five is meant to be nested inside of day two. Day four is nested inside of day one from a conceptual perspective. Day 6A, because there's a couple of things that get created here in day six. So populates Adam is in quotations there because it's ha-adam in the Hebrew, and it's the word that means humanity. And I didn't have space to write humanity because it messed up my design, so I wrote Adam. Um, Ha-adam, humanity. God creates humanity. Male and female, he created them. We'd have a big discussion about that. Um, But God creates humanity and the animals, and where do the animals and humanity go? Right? They live on the dry land. So in each of these six days, God creates a structure in the first three days, and then he populates that structure with something that rules the thing that he just created. So he makes a house, and then he fills it in the home, right, with a person or a creature or a a, a guiding star, the sun and the moon and the stars, right? So look at this. Day 6b is another creation. So it makes humanity, the ha-adam, and then also on day 6, he makes man and woman, male and female. And the role of the man and the woman is to, to... Husband, the word in Hebrew literally means to husband, which, which is where we get the idea of like, I'm a husband, but it means to caretake, to tend to, to, to the best picture of husbandry. It's called husbandry if you're a master gardener. And as a master gardener, you tend to living things. And the way you tend to living things is you kill the things that are starting to attack it and you prune back the things that are growing so they bear more fruit. The whole idea of abiding in Jesus and the vine metaphors and all of the call for Christians, believers in Jesus, to husband creation. It's not to dominate it, to, to, to strip it bare of all its natural resources and to pollute the waters because we're Christian dominionists and we don't care about the earth, you know, that we need some leftist environmental religion to make us pay tax credits to the Kyoto Protocol so that we actually care for creation. Like, no, God told Adam and Eve, man and woman, to be the husband of creation and that any orthodox Christian expression, Jewish expression, has got to take seriously the husbandry of creation. It's got to take seriously a very spirit-filled, God-ordained environmentalism. Unfortunately, our culture has hijacked environmentalism and turned it into a religion. Um, And the founder of, of, what's the crazy green, not green, Greenpeace? Um, Oh, what's the, I think it's Greenpeace. You can fact check me and Call me a false prophet if you want, but he's the founder of this, uh, this what turned into this radical uh, environmentalist organization, founded it, and then left it because they left the, the, the stewarding and caretaking of environment and turned it into this political weapon. So he left that. Um, I like being able to digress into politics when I'm teaching the Bible, although I'm sure that puts that limits my reach, but... This is what I'm doing here. Uh, so the man and the woman are called the husband creation. Okay? But then we get to the seventh day. And this is this is the payoff, y'all. Okay? So on the seventh day, um, we know what happens. 
God rests from all of his work? And what does he fill creation with? He fills it with his presence, right? So days one, two, three, and six B are creations of this space. And then on the, la- and the second day, this is this micro uh, cycle inside of the seven days, but the major day here is the filling, the inhabitating or the, the habitation, the infilling, the indwelling of the presence of God into the world that he made. And this is one of the things that is so remarkable about uh, just looking at it from an antiquity perspective. As I studied world religions, and um, the, I mean, I've studied all the world religions, and there's a difference between studying intellectually or theologically something and having a praxeology to be a devotee or someone that's following that religion. And I've never been a devotional follower of any other religion, um, but I have pursued maybe secular humanism. I was pretty proud of myself for a little while. Uh, but um, but the thing about the Judeo-Christian ethic is that God comes, and this Bible story says that all of the religious work, all of the creation is leading towards one thing, for God to be with humanity. And all of these other religious structures are about humanity pleasing God. They're all about giving devotional sacrifices to God to make God happy. So you're trying to woo God into your world. And if you are a Roman, this is where religion comes from. There was a Roman or Latin word word called religio. And religio was anything that people did to give devotional service to the gods. And for the Caesars, beginning really when Caesar Augustus, um, any, any, any person that didn't, give religio to the deities of Rome was actually a threat to the very structure of Rome because when they expanded around the empire, they couldn't get all of these different people to unite. They didn't unite around money. They didn't unite around citizenship. This guy, Caracalla, in about 200, gave everybody citizenship in Rome. They didn't unite around money, citizenship, imperial might. They united around religio, giving observance to God. And All of the world's religions were about individual people wooing God into their world to try and make God happy with them, to give God something. But not the Jewish scriptures, not the Bible. God creates humanity and the earth that he's made, and then he dwells in it. Okay, that is the home story. To reduce this beautiful Bible story to pop culture That's the money shot at the end when Joanna Gaines leaves the show and all of the people are eating in the brand new kitchen and we're all like really jealous of the kitchen. Um, That's the habitation when the friends and the family and the presence of God moves into creation. That's the creation of the home. And so this story, um, this story is the story that the biblical writers are telling that God makes a space and then fills the space. He fills it with the sun and the moon, and the birds and the fish and the animals and the humans. But when he makes humans, he fills it with himself. And on the seventh day, he rests from all of his labor. And humanity's first experience is not work, it's rest. Why does the day begin at night? 
Because the first thing you need to know when you start your day is to rest. Right? That's the first thing. Make the first thing the first thing, you know? Sharpen the saw. First things first. Stephen Covey. You know, seven habits for effective leadership. Keep the first things first. Rest is the first thing that humans experience with God, and it's on purpose. And the entire ordering of time for the Jewish person and for the children, like it's not, this isn't the Jewish God, this is God, okay? This is the God of all creation that we all submit to. He said, your first experience should be rest. The day begins with rest. The human experience begins on day seven, not work rest. And I'm belaboring that point because we're going to come back to this a lot as we talk about Sabbath, as we talk about tabernacles, as we talk about the things that begin to develop. These are foundational. God orders the chaos. He inhabits the places that he makes, and he calls us to rest. Okay? If you know the story and you jump ahead, where does the labor begin? At the rebellion. What? I thought we were supposed to work for Jesus. Well, you're probably working for yourself. Jesus wants you to rest. That's a big assertion. I'm not going to qualify that. So, I want to tell you another story here um, to reinforce this. Because if this indeed, if, if Genesis is indeed a home story, and he's telling this picture, the showing this picture of the habitation of God and the filling it with his presence, then we should see this picture in other places throughout the scriptures. If this is a guiding metaphor to understand the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jesus' daddy, the one whom we'll all stand before one day, we should see it in more than just a few verses in the beginning of the story. So, let's look at another one of the great dwelling stories. Whoops. So this is the Moses Tabernacle story, and it's a seven-day creation story as well. Um, this is a picture I took in um, Timnah, and this is south uh, Israel down near Elot. And this is the, 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 the life-size replica of the Mishkan, the tabernacle in the wilderness. Um, the Mishkan is a word that means dwelling place or habitation, and it's the name that was given for this tent. And I'm going to lay out a few of the components of this um, design here. I'm not going to get super full into it because I want to do a whole big thing on the tabernacle itself in these pictures. But I want to just show you the elements that are inside the tabernacle. So there's, there's a material structure here. And if in Exodus 25, I believe, Moses goes up and he gets this first big heaven to earth moment. I think I've shared this before, but God says, here's how we worship in heaven, and I want what you see in heaven to be built on the earth. On earth, as it is already in the heaven, Moses, in the heavens, Moses, take this and build it. And he gives them all of these detailed material designs and plans and, you know, estimations of $100 million in today's money just to build this thing with all of the gold and lapis and lazuli and all these different um, materials. But I want to lay down um, the connections here for this. There are a few main components. So these are all of the uh, main components inside the tabernacle. 
there's walls and there's coverings and there's a lot of other stuff, but these are the these are the sacred components to the tabernacle, okay? So the first sacred component to the tabernacle is the altar, and it's the thing that you saw in the full well-lit picture there. When you I'm going to go back here. So when you come in uh, to I'll do this. When you come in to the um, the dwelling place or into the Mishkan, all of these gates or the the fencing here, there's no doors in any of this stuff here. The only door comes in right here, right? I didn't get a picture of it, but you you enter in from right here, and the first thing that you see is this altar with a ramp that leads up. And this was the place that you offered your sacrifices. And the very first sacrifice that was was required to be offered was was called a burnt offering. And there's a handful of ceremonial sacrifices in Leviticus and but the burnt sacrifice or the burnt offering is an offering of submission to God. It is an offering of saying the first thing you do when you come into the tabernacle, the Mishkan complex, you're going to get into the tent. But there are two elements that are outside the tent. This one right here and this one right here, okay? Everything else is inside the tent that I'm going to show you. So the first thing you do when you come into the Mishkan is that you bring an offering. And that altar, you lay your offering on the altar. There's different kinds of offerings, but the first one you bring is an offering of burnt offering, and this is submission to God. And there are very significant pictures for all of this when you begin to, if I laid out the whole tabernacle thing, it's the one new man, it's a picture of Jesus, it's a picture of the temple, it's all this crazy awesome stuff. But today we just want to look at the first thing is the altar, submission. When you come into the presence of God, the first thing you do is submit, okay? And that word submit in the, in the Greek, in the New Testament, men submit to your wives as the heads of the house. Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> just started a new religion just now. Um, women, submit to your husbands. You can, you can tell who wears the pants in my family. Um, but the men, wives, submit to your husbands. That word submit is a Roman military term, and it means to line up for battle under your commander. So if you think about like the beginning of, of Gladiator, you know, and Marcus Aurelius is out there and, and you know, the gladiator guy, Russell Crowe's out there and they're all in these tents and then the battle cry goes up and everybody comes out and they line up in martial array under their commander. That's what submission means. It means to line up for battle under your commander. Okay, and recognizing some of those things. So you come into the altar and it's submission. The next thing that's on the outside of the uh, uh, tabernacle is the basin. And this is, this is the bronze sea. Okay, and... You may wonder and you may think, since I'm doing this in context with the Genesis story, this is intentional, right? You submit to God and then you encounter the sea, the chaos and the cleansing. Because the things that are chaos, once you've ordered them and gotten mastery over that, there's an element of cleansing. You've been cleansed from your fear. You've been cleansed from your anxiety. There's all these wild pictures um, and psychologically, what happens when you confront the chaos and the darkness in the world? It is both chaotic and cleansing. So the bronze basin is a picture of cleansing, of washing. And this is where the ceremonial washings and some things would happen. So the next thing, you now enter in. And I, I looked for some good diagrams of this and just didn't have time to build one. Um, I am going to do that, though. There's some cool 3D models that you can buy. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build a cool tabernacle study soon. 
But the next thing, when you walk into the tabernacle, uh, you go through the through the um, the the coverings into the tent itself, and you look directly to your left. The next thing that you'll see there is the lampstand. Okay, and this was probably not what it looked like, but this is a menorah. Um, there's some debate about what these lampstands were shaped like in Moses's tabernacle. Uh, but this is the lampstand. And the lampstand, of course, is this illuminating factor. Jesus calls himself the light of the world. He does that in John during the um, celebration of Hanukkah, which was a celebration, of course, after the Maccabees had cleansed the temple from Antiochus Epiphanes and the abomination set up, abomination of desolation in the temple. They cleansed it, and they had this miracle of oil, and it was... It was lit, and there were these, these lampstands inside of the, the temple complex in Jesus' day that were massive menorahs up, or lamps up, being lit with these massive torches. And Jesus cries out, I am the light of the world, right? And he's referencing this illuminating uh, temple vessel, and he's saying, I am this lampstand, Right? I am the one that gives light, not just to the temple, to the ceremonial stuff. I'm the one that gives light to the world. So um, that's pretty awesome, in my opinion. And so the lampstand is there in illumination. And if, if we're thinking about this in terms of creation, you come into submission, um, you submit to God, you order the chaos, you get cleansed through walking through the chaos of the sea. And what happens? Well, now there's light. This is how you map out difficult territory. You shine a light on it. This is John 17, when Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit, I think it may be 16, this part. It's either 16 or 17, but he says, the Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of sin, guilt, and righteousness. Convict means to expose. Conviction isn't judgment. Conviction is exposure. Lord Jesus, give us some conviction today in America. You know, expose. How do you expose? Well, you shine the light on something. When you shine the light on a dark corner, the, the, the rats and the cockroaches go scurrying away. That orders the chaotic elements there. And then you can squish them with your shoe uh, if you're the husband because your wife can't stand them. Hold on one second. I got to plug in my phone. It's about to run out of battery. Um... So the next thing that we see here in the tabernacle on the other side, so directly to the left here, if, you're, if you were entering this, oh, get rid of all that. If you were entering the, the tabernacle, you'd walk in here, and then this is where a, uh, a door would be. So this would be the outer court or the outside area. You'd come in, and this directly to your left is the lampstand. Then down here to the right is the table of showbread, okay? And on the other side is, is this table where they are preparing cakes. And these are um, ceremonial cakes, and these are very detailed uh, components of this. But this is all about bread, sustenance. So we've got, we've got submission to God. We've got ordering chaos and cleansing. We've got the illumination, and we've got bread, Oh, the bread of life. We've got the sustaining elements here inside of the tabernacle. 
And then as you progress through the tabernacle, you come up, the last thing that you see before you get to the Holy of Holies is this altar of incense. And the altar of incense is the place where you're offering up your prayers to God, and there's the fire that's on top of this um, altar and the vessels. And this is the place in Isaiah when he meets God, or an angel comes and he takes coals from the altar with the lavalier and put them on his tongue and singes his mouth. You know, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Well, here's some fire on your face, buddy. That'll fix you up. So... Incense is worship and prayer. We see this again in Revelation. All of these foundational pictures begin to emerge throughout other components in the scriptures. Um, But that's incense, worship and prayer. The next thing that we see here is the veil. And we talked about the veil last week. If you didn't listen to that, I'm plugging my own stuff. I'm not trying to sell you a book. I'm giving everybody this for free. But go and listen to that thing about the veil. I think it's very important. Um, it's got some large implications as we begin to build out our understanding of, of the kingdom of God, the here but not yet kingdom. And this veil is the threshold of man's experience or humans' encounters with God. This is the heavens. This is the picture. And I laid that all out for you all last week. This is as far as humanity has been able to go. And I asked this question last week, what's your veil? What's the threshold of your encounter with God? What limits you from walking into the thing that's behind the veil to see into the heavens, to experience the divine power and presence of the Holy One of Israel? Which ultimately here is, surprise, surprise, day seven. Here we go. We've got the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, the divine goodness, the divine glory of God manifested in the earth. So here in Moses' tabernacle, the thing that God says to Moses, this is what exists already in the heavens, and I want you to take this heavenly archetype, and I want you to build on the earth what you see already in the heavens. He inaugurates the on earth as it is in heaven prayer that Jesus quotes, which was a Jewish prayer from years, centuries before him. God says, take this and do your own seven-day creation in the earth. Build out all of these material components, but... These material components, if you just look at them like this, oh, you look at all the furniture. Look at the holy furniture. You know, isn't it sad that the Jews lost their furniture when the temple was destroyed and they carted them off? You know, it's not about furniture. This is not a house story. It's not about the material components of the tabernacle. It's about the Ark of the Covenant, the inhabited dwelling of God, and it's about the the people Um, They get to serve in there, and then what this tabernacle, this mishkan does throughout all of Israel. Okay, this is God's divine presence moving into the earth. And the tabernacle is another creation story. Or rather, it is the temple story that was already told in Genesis. Okay, it's a retelling of Genesis and laying out of this deal. I got one more thing to show you here, and then I'll take some questions. Um, So 
the next thing that happens in Israel's history is, well, not the next thing, but the next thing I'm going to talk about is um, they move from this period where they had the presence of God in their midst, but they became so enamored, they fell out of the home story back into the house story. They got done. They, they didn't continue to, to seek the divine presence and encounter with God, and they became enamored with um, having a house, building out a temple, having kings and temples. You know, and David has this longing in his heart to build for God a great temple. You know, and he builds, he says he wants to build God a temple. And again, I'll do a whole study on this. I'm not going to launch into it. But God isn't happy with David's idea. He literally says to David, Have I ever dwelled in a temple, in a house, since the day that I met you in the wilderness? Since the days of Moses, have I ever done that? What a dumb idea. Um, Maybe he said that. Uh, it's a foolish idea, you know? Um, but David's like, yeah, 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 yeah. I know that God, but ah, I really want to do it. And so God's like, all right. So David takes a census so that he can build a temple all by himself. And then there's a big problem with that. Um, and I think it's pretty connected to what's going on in America today, but I won't tell you that, but it's a big problem. David tries to build the temple himself, takes a census, Death, destruction, the plague, the coronavirus comes after Israel, and like it's a problem. And then God meets him. David meets God. There's an angel standing there ready to thresh Jerusalem, standing at the threshold. This is another threshold picture between heaven and earth. The Bible says that the angel was standing at the firmament between heaven and earth at that spot. And this is where the judgment relents over David. David then gets the threshing floor of Ornan, pays for that. That's the spot that the temple ultimately gets built on at that spot. And the next thing that happens for David is that he, instead of taking a census, he does what Moses did as God commanded him. When Moses took a census in Exodus, he had everybody bring a half shekel offering. David wanted to build it himself and because he had all the money. But If you want to establish a government, kings can do that. But if you want the presence of God in your nation, you need everybody to get involved, okay? Your senior pastor or your ex-president hiding out on a golf course isn't going to get the presence of God in your nation, you know? He may be able to protect Israel a little better, but he's not going to get the presence of God in our nation. That's the job of the body of Christ. That's the job of the people. We have got to contribute. I'm preaching a message that I haven't even laid out for you. But so this temple, though, David wants to build it, but he can't. God says, you know, you want to build me a temple? I'll tell you what. We'll strike a deal here. You don't get to build the temple. I'll build you a temple. And he says, I will build you a temple, David, and it won't just be for one generation. There will be a perpetual priesthood. There will be a throne in heaven reserved for your offspring, and your offspring will sit on a kingdom that will never be divided. Now, David's offspring, Solomon, does build the temple, and it does get divided, so God wasn't talking about Solomon in that picture. But I want to take you to this Solomon temple dedication, and we'll read these scriptures and then we'll be done. Because um, this is another house to home story. And I want to read this. This is a couple chunks of scripture, but it's an important piece of the puzzle. 
So this is Second Chronicles 6, 1 through 5. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. Okay, dwell, darkness, the Lord in the chaos. The Lord is living, inhabiting the chaos. But what does he do in the chaos? The tohu vabohu. He speaks out divine order, light, disturbance. He charges particles, draws magnetism into himself, and creates something here. Okay? Solomon's basically saying, I know this is what God does, but he's allowed us to build this thing. Let's keep going. The Lord has said he would dwell in thick darkness, but, aha, I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. I can't imagine that, you know, maybe I just have this wrong in my head, but through my studies, I just look at this and go, I wonder what God's thinking about all of our building projects, you know? I mean, I love the temple. I'm a huge fan of the temple. I've studied it. I think it's an incredible, important thing. I don't have any disdain. I hate that Temple Mount's been on fire and all this stuff happening in Jerusalem, so I don't want in any way for this to sound like denigrating of the Jewish temple. But this wasn't God's plan. This was man's plan to put God on the earth, and he was already on the earth. So Solomon said, look, I made this for you. You're going to dwell in this forever. Well, God sort of blew that up a little bit later on, but let's keep going. So then the king Solomon turned around and blessed, verse 3, blessed all the assembly of Israel, while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day I brought my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house, that my name might be there, and I chose no man as prince over my people Israel. But I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there. And I have chosen David to be over my people, Israel. This is why I qualified that, because God chose Jerusalem to place his name there. And it's important that that's the deal. And there's a punchline to this, but I'll say it again. This does not appear, the temple does not appear to be God's idea. This is David's idea, okay? Which makes it even more amazing what happens. Let's keep going. Verse 7. Now, it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. There it is, David's idea. But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart, like, you know, good motives, buddy. But nevertheless, it's not you who shall build the house, but your son, who shall be born to you, shall build the house for my name. Now, Solomon leaves out a couple of details here, okay? Uh, Namely, that it wasn't directly talking about him. It was, but this was a messianic fulfillment um, prophecy too, a son that would never leave the throne, which Solomon definitely did. Verse 9, Nevertheless, it is not you who shall build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house from my name. Now, that's where he leaves it out. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father to sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. 
And there I have set the ark, which is in the covenant of the Lord that he made with his people in Israel. I'm going to jump ahead here. He says a bunch of other, a bunch of other stuff. You can go and read it if you would like to. But in verse 18, he picks up this piece again. But will God indeed dwell with man on the earth? This is the question. Okay. Solomon is both understanding some of what he's doing, but also really wanting God in his nation. You know, and I love this heart of this leader who desperately wants God in his nation. And because he's human, he's got mixed motivation. Like he wants God in his nation, but he also wants to be a king that builds an awesome house um, and has a lot of stuff um, that impresses strange Egyptian queens and 900 women or whatever he had. Right, so, so he's got mixed motives. Like the Bible is not just here's the moral exemplar, and then here's the bad person. Like it, everybody's got darkness inside of their goodness. Um, that may not be the best way to conceptualize that, but you get what I'm saying. So, verse nineteen. Uh, actually, right after the underline. Um, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. So he understands this. And this is the moment that I think that he's recognizing the folly of his ways. Maybe it's not folly, but the limits. And this is part of our human expressions to try and give God something that's good. It comes from a heart that's pure, that desires something good. But then we fall off out of our purity into mixed motives and then maybe get off course. But we know that God is so immense, he can't be contained in our little stuff, but we still want to bring our little stuff, right? And it's important that Solomon and David, that you bring your little stuff, your little offering, the little desire, the thing that you had in your heart to do to make God's name famous in the earth. And maybe it's not his highest and best thing, but he receives it. And this is what I love so much about this, is that God, in verse 19, Solomon says, Yet, even though I know you would never live here, it couldn't possibly contain you, maybe it wasn't the best idea, but yet you have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea. O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your eyes may be open day and night toward this house, a place where you have promised to set your name, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place and listen to the pleas of your servant and your people, Israel, when they pray toward this place and listen from heaven, your dwelling place, when you hear and forgive. All right, so the English translation here is house. Um, it's it's bet, and it means house. But it's playing on the house and the home story here because we have a house and we have a dwelling. The Mishkan was never called the house. It was called the Mishkan. The tent wasn't a house. It was a Mishkan, a dwelling. Okay? The temple's a house. What do you have to do to make it a home? You've got to call down God from his dwelling place who is in the heavens. He dwelt in the, in the Mishkan. But he calls him down from heaven to here. Verse 41, I'm going to cut ahead. He 
does some more stuff. This is the end of his prayer, verse 41. And now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. Let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away from the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love from your David, your servant. Last part. As soon as Second Chronicles 7 now. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. What has just happened when the glory fills the house? You see the pictures? This is day seven, y'all. This is the dwelling, the inhabitation, the fire of God, the light of God, the ordering of the chaos coming into the place. It's not what God made in creation. It wasn't even what he told Moses to build that was in heaven. This was the human idea. And what does God do to our silly little human ideas? He comes and he fills it. He comes. The glory of the Lord filled the temple. And all of the rest of the scripture, this temple plays a central part. And I don't think that we can forget that while the temple wasn't God's idea, his idea was tabernacles and judges. Man's idea was kings and temples. Okay, there's something in that. But God says, all right, you can have a king and I will fill your temple. And the glory of the Lord filled the house. Verse 2, and the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the house. And when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever. Do you all see this repetitive theme? We've got creation. Genesis. We've got Exodus. Now we've got Chronicles. The temple the tabernacle and creation. These are all seven-day creation stories where a space has been created, a house has been materially constructed. You better believe that there was a lot of material construction elements in the Old Testament around the temple. People just go crazy with the temple and how long is a cubit? Is an old school cubit or a new school cubit? And how much is a, an omer? And all of this home story, which is important. All this house story stuff. But ultimately, this is a home story. And the last verse here. At that time, Solomon held the feast for seven days, and all Israel with him, a very great assembly from Lebohamath to the brook of Egypt. And on the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly, for they had kept the dedication of the altar seven days and the feast seven days. So this was Sukkot. This was the seven-day celebration. Pesach, Passover, seven days. Sukkot, seven days. And on the eighth day is the last special day, the great day. Um, Solomon knew if you're going to do Genesis, if you're going to create a space for the habitation of God on the earth with humanity, it better be a seven-day story. And we better do it during Sukkot because that's a seven-day habitation dwelling story when God comes to dwell with his people. And y'all, today is Shavuot. Started on Sunday. It's today, and well, today's it's already Tuesday. Um, the new day started at sundown tonight. 
Uh, so today is the last day of Shavuot, and it's the day when the fire of God returns to the temple of God, but it doesn't go into the old religious system. When the fire of God returns to the temple of God, it doesn't go back into the Holy of Holies. It lands on the new home. It lands on the disciples' heads. The fire of God that was in between the Ark of the Covenant and the cherubim, the Mishkan of God becomes us. And the fire of God returns to Temple Mount and he inhabits the dwelling place that he had longed to have from the beginning. Through the work of Jesus, through the one new man, the fire of God comes and inhabits the people of God, which is the home that God has been longing for. So did all of this work on this day to tell you guys and you gals and you people that are listening to this, you have to let the fire of God fill your home. You have to let it fill your house, this temple, this earth suit. There is a spirit of God that is from Jesus and the Father by the spirit can give life to the mortal bodies. And if you've been doing the Christian life, or if you're not doing the Christian life, and you just listen to this guy talk on the internet, wondering what this is about, this isn't about religion. This isn't about theology. This isn't about science. I love all of that stuff. But this is about the habitation of God in you. It's about the Spirit of God being in you for the fruit of the Spirit and on you for the gifts of the Spirit, on you in power to accomplish the work of God in the earth. And Jesus, for three and a half years of ministry, could only manage to get 120 people together for his startup church. He would not have made the next round of funding for most church planting organizations with just 120 people that said yes to him. But that wasn't his point. He wasn't building a church. He was establishing a home in the church, right? We became the house of God. And Jesus left the Holy Spirit to come down. And we remember that today. And I feel like that there is a fresh wind. And I just want to believe it and pray that over you. That today on the last day of Shavuot, when the power of God fell on the 120 and 3,000 people got saved and the gospel of Jesus took over the chaotic, dark world, the divine speech that started coming out of Peter, the divine speech that came out of Stephen when Paul was holding his cloak, that divine speech began to order the darkness of the pagan world, of the world that was lost in all these other religious idols and deities. That speech ordered the chaos to the ends of the earth, all the way into Greece. In a couple of years, 10, well, it was more like 80, 90 years, and it took over um, all the way up into Ephesus, Corinth, and Rome. And that fire, we are desperate for that fire in our nation. And I have a lot of friends that pray and cry out for revival. You know, in that language, I've studied some revival history, and I love Malachi to death, man. That guy is a walking revivalist fire, you know, and he fires me up about that. But, you know, I nerd out on Old Testament Hebrew stuff, but I get to this spot, and I just say, Jesus, we need your presence. We need your fire, right? It's a metaphor. It's a picture, but it's a tangible reality. Our nation isn't going to change because kings get in power. Okay, if we want the temple of God that we've built for him in our own religious hands, all the billions of dollars the American Western church is built on church buildings, if we don't have the fire of God inhabiting that temple, that place in us, we're, we've got nothing. 
And so I just believe, and I'm going to pray this right now, King Jesus, we recognize your authority on the earth and in the heavens, and we recognize Jesus, the resurrected Messiah, that you gave gifts to humanity. You gave gifts to the church, God. And on this day, 2,000 or so years ago, you sent your spirit in fire, like you said to John the Baptist when you got baptized, that there was coming a fire for sin and repentance and fire for cleansing, Father. And so, Father, I just pray a release of the Spirit of God in agreement with your word that everyone that's listening to this would receive a filling and a touch from the Spirit of God so that they could accomplish and become who you've called them to be and do the things that you've called them to do. But Father, I ask in Jesus' name that this experience of your Spirit, God, to receive the filling of the Holy Spirit tonight, that it would come with a grace for rest. God, that we would receive your presence and immediately encounter the rest, the presence, the intimacy, the connection to who you are. Father, I'm so grateful, Jesus, that you didn't leave us as orphans, but that you sent us your Spirit to lead us and guide us into all truth, to remind us of the things that are yet to come, and to give us hope and to keep us from being scandalized in a world that prevents us from seeing truth without your divine inspiration. So we just ask Jesus for your spirit to pour out tonight according to your word in the hearts of everyone listening, that they would see and hear from heaven and taste and see that you're good and that your mercy endures forever. You have a purpose for them and a purpose for this nation and the nations of the earth. We love you, King Jesus, and bless you, Holy One of Israel. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, that was fun for me anyway. That was Genesis. I didn't even talk about in his image, so maybe another time. So... If you all have any questions here on Zoom, that is the end of the lecture uh, slash teaching slash prayer time. Um, got some folks on Zoom. If you guys have a question, raise your hand if you can. I see one hand up, and I will uh, also put some questions in the chat. I was a little under the unction tonight, so I didn't look at the chat like I normally do. So put them in, put them in chat, and um, we'll go from there. Alan, what's your question? First of all, Adam, thanks for doing this. Really appreciate it. Um, also, um, I'm not sure if you follow or have read Dake before at all. Who? Um, and I'm curious what you think about what he talks about uh, with the Genesis 1-1 and the Genesis 1-2, where 1-1 was <clears throat> being used as a uh, creation event using bara as the Hebrew bara. And then basically chapter uh, <clears throat> uh, verse 2 is more of a reconstructive. It's more like a, like a, almost a, because it was a cursed state. It's, it's kind of where he was going at. And that would kind of, I mean, it really solved the whole science thing because you say Genesis 1-1 is the creation event. It could have been, you know, billions of years ago. But the 1-2 is more of a reset where it reconstructs the day, the night, and things like that, where he's taking a chaotic, uh, earth and basically recreated it into a, like a reset. And I just didn't know what you thought about that. Yeah, I haven't. I'm, I'm reading a book right now um, by a, a professor at uh, Hillsdale on Genesis and some of these other things. And I've written, 
read a couple of other things, but I've not gotten into that specific argument around what are the two different creation stories. Um, so I can't can't comment on that uh, necessarily. I think that stuff's super interesting, and there's there's lots of stuff that we don't know about it, um, but can't something I I haven't read. That's good. Not that I've read everything, but um, Faith, you had a question. Sorry, I wasn't more interesting, Alan, to your good question. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. I, to two pieces of trivia first, um, I took the class online with that professor at Hillsdale on Genesis. Okay. It was awesome. He is he was great. And I just wondered on the, the Irish door thing. Um, I, I know some people who have doors like that in their house in California, the Amundsen's. I don't know if you know Roberta Amundsen, but that's, no. that's the one I know. Anyway, my question is um, in the second Chronicles before chapter seven, the, the, the end of six that you, you had up there um, where it says, uh, now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place. And we've been talking a lot about rest. And, you know, we always sing that song in church, Oh, the glory of your presence, arise to your rest and be blessed by our praise. And I, I just, I never got arise to your rest. Could you comment on that a little bit more? So what's the verse again? Uh, oops, I just closed it. Second Chronicles chapter six. Um the, at the end, right before chapter seven, where he's talking about uh, God um, arising, well, going to his rest. There it is. Uh, verse 41, and now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation, and your saints rejoice in your goodness. And um just wondered you know because there's the idea of rest again and he's he's directing god to go to his rest and we sing that in the hymn and i never really got it before on mm. before tonight yeah i haven't ever studied unpacked that particular word um i'm looking at it now that's the first time it's used in the scripture uh it comes from a verb that's connected um about the uh, the first time that verb that is is the root word of that particular one happens in Genesis eight four when the ark rested on the seventh month in the seventeenth day of the month upon the mountains of Ararat. So this is Noah's ark coming to rest on the seventh month on the seventeenth day of the month. Um, so you know there may be there may be some you know pulling in of those ideas. Um, but it is, I mean, it, it is the foundational idea that what, what's at the bottom of the festivals is Shabbat. Like, mm -hmm. they, the, the Israelites, the Jewish people, don't get sent into Babylon because they messed up Passover or Yom Kippur, or they, they get sent into Babylon because they ignored the Sabbath, and they ignored the Sabbath rest in Jeremiah. And it's, you know, it's 10 years for every Sabbath year rest that they, that they ignored. And that God is serious about rest, serious about Sabbath. Uh, and Jesus, Jesus says that, you know, Sabbath was made, which I always forget it. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's what it is. So what he's saying there is that, that I didn't create man to observe a particular rule. 
I created the quote unquote rule so that man could have life. Right. And that's a different perspective. Um, but it is foundational, this idea of rest. Romans 4 talks about, uh, it's not Romans 4, um, I think it's Romans 8, 7 or 8. But if a man works his wage, the wages do him. But if it's a free gift of God, it's available to everyone. Mm-hmm. So if we work, that, that wage is given to us, right? It's our work. But if we rest, it makes it available to everyone, mm-hmm. right? And so this is, this is some of what is at the bottom of our hero worship and our cultic worship of movie stars, that they are a moral exemplar. They're not a moral exemplar. They're a, they're a pretend exemplar, right? They're people we want to be because they're just awesome and this hero worship. And nobody's thinking that you could be like this person. This is, this is a specimen that can't be created, recreated, you know? And that hero worship doesn't try to emulate thinking we really can be like them. We like to pretend that we're like them. You know, that work is due them. That's like their glory. But... God doesn't get glory when we work. He gets glory when we rest. And we got this backwards in our culture. You know, we think, oh, I'm doing great things for Jesus. But he says, your work is for you. Rest, your rest is for me. And when we rest, this is a demonstration that we belong to God. And it's the whole Dan Cathy Chick-fil-A thing, right? I mean, everybody knows Dan Cathy is a Christian and whatever you think about him and whatever. He has demonstrated, and other restaurants have done it too, he's demonstrated that on Sabbath for him, Sunday, um, that's the demonstration that he's a Christian. Everybody knows. And they make more dollars per, per sandwich than any of the other fast food restaurants um, because of it, I think. And the chicken's pretty good. I live in Chick-fil-A Mecca, so... I don't know if that answered your question, Faith. Um, yeah, yeah, I think so. I, it, it's It's all rest is more important than we like to think. So yeah, yeah. thank you. And the presence of God coming into your resting place. Um, mm-hmm. Like this is, we want you to come. We've created a space of rest for you. And that's why I like the contemplative and meditative prayers um, that, you know, because, you know, there's contending warfare stuff and I like that stuff too. Uh, but if we don't ever rest in the presence and in prayer, um, you know, there's, there's more to be learned there, for sure. Um, I'm going to look over on Facebook, uh, see if there's... I see your hand, Amanda. I'll see if I can get a Facebook question here real quickly. Um, oh, yeah. Del Tackett and um, The Truth Project and Ken Ham with Andrews and Genesis. Um, Vicki asked that or made a, made a statement about that. Um, I've, I've read a little bit of Delham stuff or Kinham stuff um, and seen some of that. I really like, I really like all of that stuff. I mean, I, I did tons of books on intelligent design and, you know, young earth creationism and all of that. Um, and the reason I didn't talk about it is that there's a lot of better qualified people talking about it. Uh, you know, and I, I like this home story. Um, but I sort of, I, I, this is my own personal opinion. Uh, I pursue the the young earth creationism stuff from a scientific interest perspective. Uh, I don't pursue it with the weight of biblical orthodoxy, that if I don't settle the question of six-day literal creationism, then my biblical orthodoxy, my biblical faith is unrooted. Um, 
I, I approach that stuff with interest, but it's more along the lines of not a fundamental of the, the theology. So, and it could literally be six day creation like that. That could literally be the case. Um, I just don't think that that carries the weight of biblical authority. Um, there's lots of things that are true about the scriptures that don't carry the weight of biblical authority because, you know, we discover them. Like the thing I said about light, you know, that's cool, but it's not like, you know, if you believe in your heart and confess with your tongue, Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved, right? It's different. Um, Amanda, what's your question? Well, I don't open a can of worms, but I don't think I can sleep unless you talk just a little bit about your census correlation with David, David doing the census. And can you say a couple of words? Yes. I mean, I, this, I, I'll, I did a, uh, if you go to my website, I did a, a teaching on this years ago, back when I had YouTube channels and videos up for five years and hundred people saw them. Uh, but there's a, there's a good video about that. But the basic idea is that um, when David takes the Jebusite stronghold, when he comes king, he unites the tribes, he becomes king of a divided tribal alliance, and he unites Israel, and he gets the Ark of the Covenant back, and he brings it in. But he really wants Jerusalem. He takes it from the Jebusites. He establishes that probably because it didn't really have huge tribal affiliations amongst the 12, and he needed to be a uniter. He establishes his governmental throne, the governmental leadership in Jerusalem as the city of peace. Um, there's lots of ancient stories and connections to that. But then he gets it in his heart that he wants to do the temple thing. And Joab, uh, he had a contentious relationship with his general Joab um, through the whole Abner thing. And it, it wasn't a great, it wasn't like one of his mighty men that was his good buddy. And he, Joab wins the generalship of David's army because he's the guy that finds a way into the Jebusite stronghold. And um, he climbs up through the, the shaft, Warren's shaft now it's called. You can go and look at it in the Hezekiah's tunnel in Jerusalem over in the city of David. So uh, Joab finds that shaft and crawls up it and takes the city. And so he gets the generalship. And then David says to um, Joab, his general, um, look, I'm going to take a census. And Joab says, don't do that. God will be angry with you. Don't do that. And I think it's interesting that David tells his military general what he's about to do. I think David had some concept that this maybe wasn't the best plan. You know, maybe we shouldn't just, uh, never mind. Um, uh, so maybe this wasn't the best plan. If the filter goes off, you got to respect it. Um, wasn't the best plan, but David goes ahead with it. Why? Why is this a problem, right? Well, in Exodus, in this tabernacle story, when God tells um, Moses to build the tabernacle, um, I don't have chapter and verse, but it's in this Exodus 25 to 30 range, he tells him to build this on the earth and to take a half shekel offering for the establishing of the tabernacle, the presence of God. And that's how uh, the, the Jewish uh, communities continue to this day to count because it was illegal according to Torah uh, 
the written word of God, the oral, not the oral Torah, but the Moses' Torah, it was illegal to count a Jew, uh, to count a Jewish person, because Moses didn't count, he counted the offering. So even to this day in synagogue, you can't, you need a quorum of 10 people to start synagogue. But if you go to a synagogue, you can't count anybody because the Torah says you can't count. So what they do is that they have, they either, um, usually they have a verse that they say, and it's different ones, but that has 10 Hebrew words in it. And if they can complete the whole verse, then they have a quorum to start. Uh, so it was a big deal that you don't count individuals uh, because you're part of a community. And when, I mean, when it's the Eastern mindset, if you count a person, you've now segregated that person and they don't even want to do that. So we are a community. And yes, we need to know some of the numbers of how many people have a quorum, but this is to establish, they could establish the community of God through a shared scripture reading. So I believe that God is angry, and the scripture literally says, and Satan incited David's heart to take a census. Okay, well, his military commander says, don't do it. He knows that he shouldn't do it. Why mm. does he do it? Well, I think it had to do, and this is, this is my, you know, interpretation here, but I think that he did it because he wanted to build the temple all by himself because he had all this wealth. He had it in his heart and God told him he couldn't do it. But he was like, okay, well, if I can't do it, then I'm just going to count and see how many people we have to build it. Conscripted labor. This was how you got these things, these building projects done. So he needed to see how many people he had to build this temple for him. Okay. And so when he does that, God is very angry at him. Because one, not just he's broken the law, but he's, he's trying to get the presence of God in his nation, this thing that he had in his heart that God said you can't do, and then he went to go and count the people, which is something that you shouldn't do because he's trying to do it all by himself. I want to build you a house, God. I want to count the people to see if I can force them into doing this conscripted labor. This is my interpretation of it. And God is not pleased with that because... You can't establish the presence of God in your nation unless you get all of the people. Kings can establish law and order. That's the role of a king, although that was God's desire was judges. Um, but so then that whole thing happens, and I could I could lay out a whole lot more. I mean, I have a long a long lecture study on on that particular thing. But those are those are some of the components to that, and the connection to our current deal, like. This is part of the unity of the body of Christ on the earth. That we, we, we can't have the presence of God moving in creation if we're all building our own houses. And I don't think that individual denominations are necessarily bad. Like people can have unique expressions, but there's got to be some component that we get out of this king mindset when we build the house of God that we establish our, our justice and then we establish our thrones of religion in individual circumstances or cultures or demographics or neighborhoods. Like there's, there's another way of inviting in the presence of God to the nation, expanding and witnessing that out than just building a, another temple to God. 
And this is why, this is a long answer, um, this is why the Council of Jerusalem is such a big deal in Acts chapter 15. Because all of a sudden, there is this massive disagreement between the Jewish people that are living in Jerusalem, James, Jesus' brother, and the wild, crazy apostle that's going out to all the Gentiles, bringing in a bunch of goyim into the fold. And Paul goes back to Jerusalem, has this council with all these people, and the solution to this complicated problem of who gets counted in the house of God. Do they have to be circumcised? Can they eat meat given to idols? Like, that was every piece of food in Rome, okay? The answer to that is the prophecy of, I think it's Malachi, when he says, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David that has fallen down. That is the solution to the problem of the Jew and the Gentile working together. Well, how is that a solution? And that is, that is one of the most important things right now. The tabernacle of David. It's not the temple of David. It's not the temple of Solomon. It's not Herod's temple. It's not the third temple. There will be an Ezekiel temple, but I think that's coming after whatever comes. It's the tabernacle of David. What was the tabernacle of David? Well, it was a simple mishkan on Mount Zion for 40 years where they only did two kinds of sacrifices, burnt offering and peace offering. Burnt offering, which is submission to God, and peace offering, which is a communal eating. They didn't do any sin offering in the tabernacle of David. It was a New Testament revelation in the middle of the Old Testament. It is the thing that God wants to rebuild in the earth for the unadulterated, unrestricted, glory, presence, company of men and women that, that, that have access nonstop to the presence of God. Um, and yes, it's 24-hour worship and prayer. Yeah, it is IHOP, and it is the house prayer and prayer church movement, and it is the rebuilding of that. But fundamentally, it is about we submit to God and we extend his peace. We don't have to make sin sacrificial offerings anymore. Jesus was that completed sin sacrifice offering anymore. But we need to spend our lives in his presence, submitting to God and ushering in his peace. And if we submit to God and usher in shalom, then all the broken pieces of the earth get put back together. And that's what counts to be in the family of God, that you submit to God and you extend his peace, receive his peace and extend his peace. And that's the answer to the Council of Jerusalem. That's the solution for the Jew-Gentile problem. It's not the tabernacle of Moses even. It's the no. tabernacle of David. And that's, that's super deep. Like that's hours of study and revelation on that but that was five minutes worth that helps a lot thank you sure you're welcome you're welcome any other zoom i'm gonna go back over here oh not forget my sorry i forget my youtube people um massachusetts hey welcome susan from mass it's wicked awesome up there massachusetts um what do you think about the assumption? Yeah, okay. Um, here's a good one. What do you think about the idea that the firmament is an actual water covering of the earth that fell leading to the flood of Noah? That's a good question. And this, this is one of my things that I really like about the science-y portion of the creationism thing is like the whole idea in the scriptures, it does say that rain had never fallen before. 
uh, in the days of Noah, that there had never been rain. There was a mist going up from the earth. Um, and so uh, <clears throat> there is some very interesting science uh, postulating um, an atmosphere, a massive atmospheric shift. Um, and I've read some particular things about water that's deep in the cores in Antarctica that's got fundamentally different oxygen levels in it. Um, and that there's a component to why Methuselah lived 990-whatever years because there was oxygenated water uh, to a degree. It wasn't H2O. It was like H62O. Um, there was extra mm. oxygen in uh, the air and in the water. And so, you know, when the bodies got all this extra oxygen, I mean, the physical decay of the body is about oxidization and free radicals that are breaking down cellular membranes. And if you've got extra oxygen that's pure in your body, cells stay alive and healthy. Um, so there's some really fascinating stuff around the idea uh, of that. And I think that... Uh, that that would be, I don't know. I think it's plausible. Um, increased air pressure with that kind of canopy, better circulation. Yeah, that's right. That's right, Melody. You know, a barometric pressure shift, a massive reduction in the amount of oxygen that we changed that we that we were that we were consuming as humans um, after the after the Noah's flood and the barometric pressure change that 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 didn't circulate our blood appropriately um, would contribute. And there's interesting science being done on all that. Oxygenated water uh, is a very interesting topic um, as well. It's good too. Yes, it is good too. Buy your Kangen machines. <laughs> um, all right. Well, it's 10 o'clock and my wife has been gone forever. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> but, oh, this is a good one. Divination and astrology. Let me see. Um, studies on numbers and significant numbers in the Bible. Seeing Christians discussing numeric meaning of names. Thought that was numerology and to be avoided. Is there a Christian counterpart to numerology? Another comment on that. Seemed like divination, like astrology, divining the heavens somehow. Maybe Adam can shed light. Well, not sure how much light. Dimly through a veil. I'll shine my little tiny flashlight up into that mess. But... Um, First off, there's a difference between astronomy and astrology. And Daniel was the head of the magicians. He established the school. Um, they weren't magicians. They were magi. And we, the, the magi were people that understood the heavens. They understood. Um, and the scriptures say that God set the greater and the lesser star, the greater and the lesser sun and the moon to be timekeepers, guardians. And then he set the stars. And then he says that he set them in motion, or that was the moedim is the word, and that is the rhythms of God. And so in Genesis, it says literally that the stars and the sun and the moon set and display the rhythms and the activity of God. So the idea in astronomy and the Magi and, and Daniel and the, the wise men, there weren't three wise men. Um, <laughs> someone's puppy. I'm going to turn you down. Um, the, the wise men that came from Iran, they, they had seen something happening in the, in the sky. And they had seen a convergence of three or four, probably three major stars that were telling them something. 
And they came and they actually got to the spot in the moment to encounter the Messiah. They got to see him as a baby because they knew the signs in the sky. So understanding what God is displaying, um, in fact, the opening, opening lines of Romans say that we are without excuse, that the heavens are declaring who God is, that we're without excuse just because of the natural order of things. So in no way do I think that looking at the stars and understanding, trying to understand the character, nature, heart, and timings and rhythms of God, um, how they're connected to the stars, that's important. The problem with that, it's not that, it's the problem with astronomy is that it begins to, the stars begin to tell you what you ought to be doing. Okay? And that's the very generic difference. We can discover what God's doing, but astronomy... Astronomy discovers what God is doing. Astrology looks at the stars, and the stars tell us what we ought to be doing. And whenever you start get, taking your marching orders from something up in the second heavens, you're probably fixing to be led astray by something you probably don't want to follow. So that's why the, the, the demonic realm is pretty active in, in astrology, um, not because the stars don't display and can't reveal God. They even displayed Jesus. But when we start taking our marching orders and whether it's a good time to conceive or when we should plant our businesses and all those kinds of things that, uh, that astronomers do or astrologists do, you can get into error pretty fast um, with that. Uh, as it relates to numerology, um, yes, uh, the Kabbalists uh, do a lot with numerology. Um, but, and they do some interesting things. And again, everything that comes from God has a way that it gets twisted and perverted to lead us astray. That's the devil's plan. That's all they can do, twist and pervert. So, um, the numbers, the biblical numbering, uh, in scripture is, I think it's a very profound, uh, piece of the puzzle. Uh, we saw tonight just how significant seven day cycles are. And what does it mean when you see the number seven? What does it mean? What does it mean when you see three days? Look through the scripture and see the three-day stuff, three days in the belly of the way, three days in, in you know, Sheol or wherever Jesus went, um, three days of preparing yourself to go and meet God at Mount Sinai. Um, Twelve is a big deal. That's government. Five is Torah and God's law. Um, if you ever want to do a fun study, go look up... Um, about midnight, Google about midnight, find that phrase and see what happens at about midnight, uh, that phrase throughout scripture or around midnight. So time and numbers do display particular things. And the numerologists then take that foundation and then they ascribe individual Hebrew characters to numbers and they can then count things out. Uh, we got 666 in the book of Revelation, and numerologists do a lot of stuff with that. So um, I don't do a whole bunch of number stuff. Uh, I do know the 5 and the 7 and the 12, those, those concepts, but I don't do a bunch of the numerology uh, pieces to that. The long answer, the short answer to the long one I just gave was both astronomy, um, astrology, and numerology uh, do have elements that they begin to take marching orders 
from these other forces, which very quickly can be coupled into demonic forces. And I think that that's something to definitely be avoided, but we don't need to be afraid of numbers and stars. Um, if we understand, if we understand that. Um, and the way that you protect yourself from this stuff is receive the Holy Spirit and stay in communion with him. You know, the best protection in your marriage is not a porn filter on your computer. It's a healthy relationship with your spouse, okay? That's the best protection, okay? And there's a lot of darkness and a lot of evil out there, and we don't get safe by staying away from evil. They put the sickest people in the most disease-free places in the hospital, okay? The NICU and the ER and the ICU, there's no germs in there. You don't put healthy people in really clean environments. You put sick people there. So um, the best way to stay healthy is to have a strong immune system, you know, which is why masks are stupid. And um, <laughs> the best way to be protected from numerology and astronomy and all the other darkness in the world is to stay connected to Jesus. Receive his Holy Spirit. Let him fill you up, lead you, and guide you into all truth. And stay close. Abide, and you will bear fruit. So with that, I am going to sign off for the evening. Here is my outro music. Thank you all so much for joining me tonight for the weekly study. We'll be doing something. Um, yeah, next week, next week I'll have a puppy in my house. So hopefully it won't be too chaotic. We're going to get a puppy in Dallas for my children because they asked Jesus for a puppy and apparently he gave one to us and it cost me a lot of money. Thank you, Jesus. So thank you all, and I will talk with you all again next week when we do the next one inside of Genesis. So good night, everyone.